Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. My brother Brent was the fifth victim. The stubborn shit and listened to our mum, he wouldn't have been one of them, but he just couldn't stay away from Denise. Everyone who has experienced their first loves knows the ferocious need to be near the source, and my sweet mischievous brother was no exception. I wonder now if that urgency came from a subconscious knowing. Could he hear the thundering of his precious seconds as they ticked down, making him gluttonous for the living of his life as he'd known it, and for a time with his equally sweet and mischievous Denise? Our neighbour David Wilson was the first. To say that I disliked David was a massive understatement. He had the personality of a hungry cat in the rain, so needy but also incapable of closeness, and it made him angry and unpredictable. Brent was a year and a half older than me, and was definitely the instigator between us, but I was bigger, and I can't count the number of times I had to beat David off when he launched into one of his fits. There was no way to walk home from school without passing his house, And on most days, he he was unkempt and surly, but otherwise fine. He'd mostly ignore us. And on extra good days, he'd show off some dangerous-looking junk he'd scavenged around the neighborhood. But every once in a while, he'd snap and take out his rage on the closest person who was smaller than him. And as his only adolescent neighbors, it was usually me or Brent. Our mum was more sympathetic to the kid than we had the capacity to be. He doesn't have a mum, his grandma's insane, and his dad's only sober on Easter, she'd lecture, and we'd moan back about how it didn't make it okay for him to throw a tire iron at my shin, or toss Brent's coat into the muddy ditch on a 25 degree day. She'd beg us to be kind to the kid, but she never saw the dark gleam of enjoyment in him after he clocked me in the head when I wasn't looking, or cut Brent so badly he needed stitches, and so... I wasn't sad when he was the first, not even a little bit. On the morning they found him, I woke up to his grandmother wailing in their yard, and it was so early the glowing arch of the rising sun had yet to break out the horizon, and I couldn't make out what was happening through my bedroom window. I threw my winter coat over my pyjamas and padded into my neighborhood which was still cast in the very pale blue of dawn. The grandmother's screams rocketed toward me through the still air, and I could sense our other neighbors as they emerged from their homes and shuffled onto their lawns in the same sleepy trance that I had yet to shake. The spell was broken when one of them shouted, Oh, Jesus! and started sprinting towards David's house. I quickened my pace to catch a glimpse of whatever he was running toward before the crowd grew too thick in front of me, and I immediately wished I hadn't. I wished... I had stayed in bed and didn't see what I saw and could have kept my world as safe and intact as it had been before I caught a glimpse of him in that tree. I rounded the corner of the house 
and a small group had gathered around the base of the enormous oak tree in the Wilson's backyard. Several men were struggling with a very tall ladder on the ground below, and when I followed the angle of the ladder into the tree, it ended at something dangling over one of the branches around 20 feet up. My first thought was that a, a tarp or a large kite had gotten snagged, but the, the, the color and the shape were all wrong, and with growing horror, I realized that I was staring at the limp, naked body of a boy. He looked wrung out like one of my mother's washclothes after she'd draped it over the faucet to dry. And it wasn't until his face came into view that I realized he was hanging from the branch backwards. I, I retched as I imagined what had been done to his body for it to dangle so loosely, then felt my mother's arms pulling me out of the yard and into the safety of our house as the first morning rays fell on David's mangled body and illuminated our neighbor's fear and incomprehension. The closest the police ever got to finding a suspect for David's murder was a transient man a neighbour had claimed she'd seen near the Wilson's house that night. But he didn't look like he had the strength to pull on a light jacket, let alone a teenage boy's back and then dispose of him midway up an ancient oak. The neighbours had also destroyed any chance of them finding solid evidence when they trampled all over the crime scene in their panic to retrieve David's body, which destroyed even more. Rumours spread that he had done it to himself, that he had taken drugs and had climbed the tree naked and had died when a branch broke his drunken fall. And honestly, it seemed like the most plausible explanation when compared with the alternative. And so the town's panic subsided fairly quickly. The holidays were also just around the corner, so we all let ourselves be distracted by the endless events and activities of the season. The Roscoe brothers were next. On paper, Oscar and Arthur Roscoe were significantly more dangerous than David had been. But I actually liked the Roscoe boys. They had a juvenile rap sheet the size of a phone book, but they'd beaten the absolute crap out of Devon Cavanaugh when they caught him picking on me behind Tesco Express. I later learned that they had a standing rivalry with Devon, and so were probably looking for any excuse to knock him around, but I still had a soft spot for them. They were also funny. Unlike the other troubled kids I'd known, they, they didn't punch down to get a laugh, and, and I was constantly amazed by their quick wit, especially when confronted by authority figures. I'd been in the same Tesco once when the owner spotted Arthur swiping some snacks he didn't plan to pay for, and called the police. I'm, I'm pretty sure they have a police record, the owner accused as the officers sized up the situation. Do not, Arthur shot back, and without missing a beat, Oscar added, Does the Sting album we got our mum for Christmas a few years back count? I, I couldn't help but laugh, which caught dirty looks from the adults in the room, but Oscar shot me a commiserative smile before one of the officers hauled him out of the store by his bicep. I don't think they were bad kids, I think they were just doing the best they could with what they had, which was very little in the way of money, but they'd been blessed with an abundance of audacity and wit. On the morning they found them, I awoke to the screams of emergency vehicles as they barreled through the town toward the apartment building that Arthur and Oscar shared with whichever parent was out of jail at the time. 
It was too far away for me to investigate in person, thank God, because the reports of what a neighbor found in the trees in the courtyard will give me nightmares for the rest of my life. The Roscoe's elderly neighbor brought her equally elderly dog out for a wee, just as dawn was breaking on an extra cold Tuesday morning, and might not have noticed the brothers strewn about in the branches above if her terrier hadn't started barking at one of their low-hanging limbs. And I'm not referring to the limbs of the trees, I mean the brothers' limbs, which had been ripped from their torsos and were swinging from the otherwise bare trees. Their torsos had been displayed near the tops of their respective trees, and the rumour was that their guts had been piled elegantly on top of their heads. That, that was the word I overheard my mum's friend Ellen use as they whispered and chain-smoked in our kitchen a couple of days later. Dan showed me a photo, Ellen said, referring to a cop boyfriend. She took a long drag and my mum's eyes grew wide. I, I don't know what's wrong with that man, but he handed it to me so casually I would have thought it was a picture of his freaking dog. Ellen shuddered and took another drag before continuing. And the kids' innards were piled up on his head like it was Amy Winehouse or something. She swirled a hand above her own head to mimic Amy Winehouse's signature do. It was almost... elegant. Her voice cracked as she said it, and she swiped at both of her eyes as my mum snubbed out a cigarette so she could pace around our small table. I retreated to my room before I could hear any more. Even then, a, a low terror had started to bloom in my stomach and, and I foolishly thought I could escape our fate in the wood-panelled walls of my tiny room. But our clock would stop just seven days later. After the Roscoe boys, it was clear there was a serial killer of teen boys on the loose in our town, so our school made the decision to start our holiday break almost two weeks early to give parents the option to lock us up at home and out of the path of the maniac in our midst. Our mum took it a step further and packed us off to our Aunt Alice's house 30 miles away, foolishly thinking we could escape our fate in the modern concrete walls of Alice's expansive flat. As a kid, our mum had been lost in the shadow of her ambitious older sister, and while everyone's attention was captured by Alice's many achievements, our mum started a secret love affair with our father, which resulted in her becoming a single mother of two by the time she was 23. Alice, on the other hand, had started her own PR firm by the time she was 23, and always managed to find a way to punish our mum for how our lives turned out, rather than buoy us up with her ample resources. When we were small, she was much more willing to have us around, but as our father's absence made more of an impression on our lives and Brent became more of a handful as a result, our invitations to spend time with her in the city dwindled and then disappeared completely after Brent was put on probation for painting a penis on the side of our headmaster's whippet on a dare. <laughs> Brent wasn't a bad kid, he was just easily influenced, and the bored older boys who weren't bright enough or rich enough to move on after graduation were the ones he looked to for guidance in lieu of a proper father figure. Our mum worked in the kitchen at the primary school, and so as soon as she heard that our holiday breaks had started early, she rang Alice to explain she'd be having extended house guests for Christmas that year. I, I, I don't know, Alice. I, I can sleep under the table for all I care. All I know is that the boys aren't safe here and we don't have money for a hotel, and so we'll be there before sundown. 
I could hear her exasperated voice through my bedroom wall as I counted out enough socks and underwear for two weeks, which was the amount of time my mum estimated it would take for the authorities to track down the killer so we could return. I could also hear Brent slamming around his room in protest of leaving. He had only been dating Denise for two months, but it was long enough for him to fall deeply in love and then deeply in panic when he realised he wouldn't see her for an indefinite amount of time. I won't go, he raged into my mum's exhausted face. I'm 16 and I'm old enough to make my own decisions. What, what if Denise wants to meet someone else? And, and I refuse to spend more than an hour with that bitch Aunt Alice. I won't do it. Brent! Mum shouted as he cursed our aunt, but he just took a step toward her, more determined than ever I'd seen him. I'm not going, Mum. You can't make me. Never heard the voice that came out of Mum before that moment, but it was the voice of a terrified mother, determined to keep her offspring safe and whole at all costs. It was loud and low and almost primal, and Brent's regret was immediately obvious as she started to speak. You will go, she shrieked. I have lost too much in this life and I will not lose you or your brother to that freaking monster. We are going to Alice's and I don't care if you spend every second of every day talking to your little girlfriend, but I will not leave you here to be scattered amongst the foliage by some maniac. And that is final. Her whole body shook as she screamed the last words, but she didn't back down or break down. And I watched as Brent's regret turned to resignation. He held her gaze for a few silent beats, then turned and stomped off to his room without another word. I think we all hoped that by the time we got to Alice's, she would have softened the idea that the potential of her nephews being dismembered by a serial killer outweighed the inconvenience of unwanted company. But our hopes were dashed the moment she opened the door. Hi guys, good to see you, she said as she gestured for us to enter, but her words were flat and she barely made eye contact as she gave us each an awkward side hug. I have a courier bringing an air mattress so you boys can both be in here. Our footsteps echoed off of her 20-foot walls as she hurried us through the living space and down the hall to the guest room. She opened the door to indicate which room she was referring to, but kept moving down the hall without missing a step. I glanced into the immaculate guest room that I'd be sharing with Brent for the indefinite future and picked up my pace to catch up. I managed to get the bike out of the way enough for you to be comfortable in here. Alice swung open the door and acknowledged her sister, who nodded thanks and walked past her into the room. The sofa pulls out, and those sheets are fresh. Alice gestured to the crisp pile of linens and pillows stacked on a long piece of furniture that looked more like a slightly padded table than a sofa, and I leaned over to figure out where exactly my mother's bed could be hiding inside its minimal form. A very modern-looking exercise machine had been shoved against the opposite wall, and there were neat stacks of pale mats and weights next to it. I have to get back to work, but there's mineral water in the fridge. I have an important call in 30, so please keep your voices down. She smiled a tight smile, then disappeared, having fulfilled her duties to provide us with shelter and hydration. Okay, Mum sighed, and set down her bags gently so as not to cause an echo. Why don't you boys get settled in and I'll order a pizza. I impulsively wrapped my arms around her waist to reassure her it was going to be okay. Then Brent and I trudged back down the hall to our room. I'll take the air mattress, Brent announced as he dropped his heavy duffel without any regard for the subsequent echoes it caused. As if on cue, a buzzer announced that someone was at the door and a burly delivery man was wheeling the mattress box into our bedroom moments later. 
Once it was inflated, Brent wedged it into the short alcove between the wardrobe and the back wall to create the illusion of privacy. Once he was satisfied, he shooed me out of the room so we could crawl into the nook and call Denise. I really didn't want to explore Alice's flat alone, but knew better than to argue with Brent in that state, so closed the door quietly behind me and perched awkwardly on one of the edges of the cream-coloured linen sectional that was longer than her entire house, until Mum emerged to order our dinner. We heard about the fourth victim when Ellen called Mum in hysterics three days later. What? Mum said in a hushed tone and shot a panicked glance in my direction before hurrying down the hall with a hand cupped over the phone so I wouldn't hear. Just before she closed the door, I heard her say, A, a girl this time? Who? Melinda Wells was the fourth kid they found, breaking the streak of what everyone assumed would be all-male victims. It's rare for serial killers to target multiple genders, and learning that he'd killed Melinda was almost as shocking as what he'd done to her. Melinda was a, a tragic case in that she had no power of any kind to wield over the world, and a lack of control made her just plain mean. Her elderly grandmother had been tasked with raising her after the rest of her family had either overdosed or been incarcerated, and the poor woman wouldn't have been able to handle the tornado that was a granddaughter even at her most young and spry. She darted through life, lost and banshee-like, screeching demands of comfort that would never be fulfilled, no matter the level of violence and manipulation she employed. And where some troubled girls have their looks to use as a currency on the battlefield of a vulnerable life, Melinda had the face of a mole and the body to match. Like a creature who has evolved to navigate the subterranean world, her eyes were too small, her nose too large, and her fine hair lay in golem-like strands around her pale, frustrated face. She was as unlovable as they come, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I once had the fleeting thought that her family might have leaned so hard into drugs to escape their wretched offspring. If that were the case, they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble because Melinda's miserable life was cut short when someone seemingly unraveled her skin and insides, then stretched them thin enough to adorn her grandmother's prized chestnut tree just six days before Christmas. My mother, who had been such a still, steady force in my life up to that point, became nervous and clingy after hearing about Melinda, which only escalated Brent's angst. Alice rarely left her office during waking hours, and when she did, she was curt and unkind, which seemed to further alienate my love-starved brother. I, I tried my best to keep the peace, but was no match for Brent's growing rage and the relentless tension between Mum and Alice, and it all came to a head on Christmas Eve. Mum made a trip to the fancy food market and convinced Alice to join us for the special lunch she'd splurged on to try to salvage the holiday. She'd laid out a spread of the, the best bread, figgy jams and expensive cheeses. There were juicy sausages wrapped in crispy bacon and a glistening Christmas pudding with custard that I could tell without tasting would be perfectly light and sweet and without a hint of the hidden peels that always ruined it for me. Even Brent had the slightest smile on his face as he sat down with Mum and I. 
and the three of us waited patiently for Alice to wrap up her work call so she could join. Her usually tense posture was softer as she approached the table, and I held my breath that her demeanour would match. But she shattered that hope as soon as she'd sat down and opened her mouth to address my brother. Brent, I'm going to need you to stay off of the Wi-Fi during my work hours. You're absolutely draining the bandwidth, and I almost lost a client today because the connection kept failing during a presentation. She punctuated the demand with her signature taut smile, then dug into the lunch spread without any sign of appreciation for the money and effort her sister had invested for us to have a nice holiday. I, I can't do this, Mum, Brent said, and pushed back from the table. I can't live with this bitch. I, I miss my friends and I'm, I'm, I'm miserable here. Alice glanced at Brent briefly as she shoved a crusty corner of cheese-laden toast into her mouth, but showed no other sign that she'd been affected by his outburst. Brent! Mum began weakly, but he'd already stomped off and was slamming the door to our temporary room. I would have preferred uh, a full-blown fight over the depressing ache that hung over the table as Alice munched joylessly and Mum breathed a deep sigh while staring at her empty plate. There's a reason I never married, Alice interjected unhelpfully, and Mum quietly excused herself to her room. Brent spent the rest of the day in solitude and Mum emerged a couple of hours later, slightly pink and puffy but smiling sweetly. As a stand-in for an actual holiday celebration, she and I ate cold cake and sausages on my aunt's design of furniture while we watched a Christmas movie, then went to bed early, eager for an end to the ruined day. The lights were out and Brent was already snoring softly when I entered our room. And I fell into a shallow, anxious sleep for a few hours before waking with a start and sitting straight up in my bed in the pitch black. I wasn't sure what had awoken me, but after a couple of seconds I realised I couldn't hear the rhythmic breathing that I'd become accustomed to over the days that I'd shared the room with my brother. I snuck over to his bed, careful not to wake him unnecessarily, and when I got close enough to see through the darkness, it was clear that his bed was empty. I checked the whole bathroom that Alice had assigned us to use, but there was no sign of him. So I took a lap around the loft to see if he'd gotten hungry enough to sneak a midnight snack. The flat was as empty as his bed had been. So I woke Mum as a low dread that had been rumbling in my belly intensified. She dialed Brent's phone several times, but I, I could hear the immediate transfer to his voicemail each time she tried. There was panic in her eyes as she rushed to the door and slipped her boots and coat over her pyjamas. I followed suit, and, and she was in such a state she didn't realise I'd followed her until we were rocketing down the highway toward home, and it was too late to turn round. As we whipped around the corner into our driveway, the clock on the dashboard read 3.47, and Mum had barely killed the engine before she'd ripped open the car door and was scrambling toward her house. I hesitated in the car, reluctant to meet the future that was barreling toward us and slowly unlatched the door and pushed it open. I sensed movement in our side yard as I softly clicked the door closed, so I veered off to the right rather than follow Mum into the house where she was throwing the lights on in each room as she called out my brother's name. I tried to mentally prepare myself to find my brother's body in and amongst the beautiful stand of trees that separated our house from our closest neighbour. But nothing could have prepared me for what else I found. I could hear the chittering before I reached our fence. And as I came around the corner of our house, the long, thin back of someone hunched over in our yard came into view. 
the person was very tall and appeared to be completely naked as I could see the impression of their spine and ribs straining against the skin that was so white it gleamed in the moonlight. They worked frantically on something in front of them, clicking and chittering incomprehensibly. And when they were satisfied with what they'd done, they rose and turned towards the trees, very tall at full height, at least seven or eight feet. And, and the shape of their hips and chest led me to believe that they were a man. As I watched in horror, he reeled back his disproportionate bony arm and lobbed something roundish and lumpy into the nearest tree. He grunted with satisfaction as the lump caught between two branches and remained in place ten or so feet up. I glanced at the place on the ground where he'd been working and gasped at the sight of the bright red Nikes Brent had saved for months to buy and, and hadn't taken off since. I could see his motionless legs sticking out from the tops of the shoes, but the rest of him was lost in the shadow of the house. The man spun toward me at the sound of my gasp and, and, and I slapped my hands over my mouth, but it, but it was too late. Our eyes locked and, and I could see a savage and immaculate insanity tumbling around inside of him. He opened his mouth to reveal rows of brick-like teeth that, that shouldn't be able to fit inside of his gnarled, colourless face. He roared gleefully and galloped toward me so swiftly I barely had time to blink before his awful face was pressed up against mine. The low fence was the only thing that separated us and, and I, I desperately wanted to scream as he peppered my face with hot sniffs through his disfigured nose but I was so scared I could barely breathe. After a few agonizing seconds he, he reeled back disappointed and, and shook his head violently. Not naughty. The words came out in a raspy hiss and, and, and his hands trailed up the sides of his face to pull up the random tufts of snow-white hair left on his head. Not naughty. The force of his words knocked me back a few steps and he turned in one wild swoop to amble back toward where Brent lay on our lawn. No! I screamed and threw open the gate to charge at him before he could reach my brother. He didn't turn back as I, I ran toward him with my full might. And just before I could attempt to tackle, his right arm reached back, hooked around my waist and launched me forward so aggressively I caught air for a second. I landed with a thud and as I rolled onto my back and fought to catch my breath, he leapt over me and pressed his face against mine for the second time. Not naughty. He slobbered insistently. Nice. Not naughty. The world around us seemed to fall silent as I stared into his unblinking eyes and contemplated his words. Seconds stretched into days and, and weeks as something inside of his gaze beckoned to me, terrifying but familiar, something ancient and beloved now broken. I strained against the weight of my realization and willed the mechanism that hinged my jaw to open my mouth, to engage my throat, to ask an impossible question with a voice so insignificant in comparison to the entity that loomed above me. Santa? For a millionth of a microsecond, a flicker of warmth passed between us. And it was so powerful and pure, I would have wept. 
But his mania returned in an unstoppable flood and he opened his mouth and wailed into my stunned face at such a high volume, I was sure I'd go deaf before he was done. His body writhed with fury as he straddled me, and he looked at me with so much rage I was sure he'd rip me to shreds. He seemed to strain against an unseen force for several seconds and then threw himself violently backward and away from me with another scream. My mother came tumbling out of the house and, and, and wrapped her arms protectively around me as we watched Santa wail and writhe in agony on our lawn. He, he clawed at his own face and, and battered himself between the trees. He screamed and thrashed and pounded at himself in the ground. And then very suddenly he stopped and stared at mum and I and, and his body heaved in rhythm with his breath. He contemplated mum for a moment and I watched as another flash of tenderness rippled through his body so intensely he almost shimmered. He screamed one final monumental scream and then darted into the darkness of the trees and disappeared completely. Brent survived, if you can believe it. Santa had ripped out a sizable portion of his lower back and thigh and abraded one of his kidneys in the process, but left everything vital intact. And so, despite needing a handful of surgeries to reconstruct the side of his ass, he was the first of Santa's victims to live. They found Denise hiding in the woods a mile and a half from our house, and she was completely unharmed physically but she never really recovered mentally or emotionally. None of us will, if I'm being honest. The year after the first attacks, scientists announced that flowers had started blooming in Antarctica and that ancient viruses were emerging from the melting permafrost at the North Pole, so it, it wasn't much of a leap to imagine what else had thawed and broken free after being dormant for millions of years. Brent's attack was the last one that year, but they've ramped up every year since. The following December, Santa targeted a mid-sized city in Denmark and crossed someone off of the naughty list every day for the 12 days leading up to Christmas. The following year, he worked his way down the eastern seaboard of the United States, killing at least two naughty kids per day for the 12 days, and his peak was seven, which he managed on Christmas Eve. The last couple of Decembers have been a total blitzkrieg of death and violence. And it's hard to imagine how he's managed to move quickly enough to take as many victims as he has in just 12 days. But he has the magic of Christmas on his side, I guess. There isn't a chimney in the world that hasn't been capped, and those that can afford it have invested in fortified steel door and window coverings, so... Starting on December 14th of every year, the sounds of them rolling into place reverberate through every town, every night as the sun goes down. Families are pushing through their fear and are still celebrating Christmas and exchanging gifts for the most part. We're hanging on to the beloved holiday for as long as we can. But these days, once the children are sleeping or snug in their beds, their helmets are tightened to protect their soft heads. Heavy spikes and wide planks below the chimney are rolled and long belts of ammo begin to unfold with low-grade explosives around the mantle and tree 
infrared mode engaged so through the night one can see. The parents take shifts, ears cocked to the roof, for the prancing or pouring of a malevolent hoof. story was written by Courtney Eck and Fergus Eck and narrated by Ben Chandler. For more stories that haunt, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join our Patreon at Please Leave Pod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Please Leave Pod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Please Leave Media production.